Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Janice Alpert I'm recording our podcast called On Purpose. Sorry, guys, I'm a little hoarse, but I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, where we interview people about what their purpose is, how they found it, in hopes to help whoever's listening to examine what their purpose might be. Um, and today we have a very special guest. All my guests are special, but I'm really excited. Um, her name is Rabbi Karen Kadar. She actually married my husband and I, so I've known her for a long time. Not really that well personally, but we're really excited to hear what she has to say. Welcome, Rabbi. How are you? I'm doing great. It's so nice to be here with you. Oh, it's really my honor, my pleasure. So usually I just start off. I don't I don't I mean, I know you, but I don't really know, you know you. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your growing up and kind of your family life? Like, I, I think I, I know you didn't grow up in the Chicago area. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I was born in D.C. Uh huh. I would say a typical Washington suburban um, family where uh, my father, of blessed memory, was an attorney working for the government, my mother, a housewife. Mm. Um, we were, um, it was so exciting to grow up in Washington, D.C. I felt like it was the center of all things important. You know, the field trip was the Smithsonian. The, the day Amazing. was the, the, the rally on the mall. It was a happening, wonderful place to be. Um, and I grew up in a, a, a family that was very active in their congregation so okay so so they were always so they were even growing up then as far as judaism and all that that was a integral part of your life absolutely yeah and do you have siblings or i had a brother who passed away several years ago oh i'm sorry oh yeah, that's tough. I know my brother passed away also a few years ago. So that's that's yeah, a tough bit. You know, at those moments, since your podcast is about purpose, mm -hmm. those moments, um, you know, are, are moments that can shake you off your mark or mm. solidly plant you on your mark. Right. Um, well, that's that's part of, you know, I know um, besides leading the congregation and whatever, you're you're a very uh, proficient author and that's you know, part of much of what you talk about, and I agree, is that we don't know what's going to happen in life, but it's what we do with it that ultimately, you know, kind of marks like who we are and how we're going to experience things. So we know bad things happen, but if we can figure out, well, what, did, did this have some meaning? Was there some purpose? What am I supposed to learn from this? Then we're probably going to feel a little bit better than just, you know, kind of flaying in the wind, so to speak. 100%. Right. All right. So growing up, did you know, like from a young age, like I want, uh, so what was, how did you like kind of know, like, this is like, you wanted to do something in the, you know, be, of course, first of all, to be a woman rabbi back when you were a little girl, that was like, I don't even, did they even have women rabbis? They did not. The story goes that I woke up one morning when I was eight years old. Oh, wow. To my mother's kitchen before school, uh, if you can imagine the yellow linoleum uh, floors with the pink fluffy slippers and my hair all over my face and said, I, Ma, I want to be a rabbi. And my mother said, you can do whatever you want in your life, sweetheart. But right now you have to get ready for school. And that um, that two prong approach, which was my parents approach to life all the time, that is the answer is always yes. Uh -huh. And you need to do what's right in front of you. Um, one step at a time, paved the way for me to realize I could do anything that I'd ever really want to do. There weren't any women rabbis back then, but nobody told me no until I got to college. Oh, first of all, 
I love that your mother said that to you. I just love that. I mean, if any parents that are listening, take heed. That's that was like the perfect answer instead of like, what are you crazy or whatever? So um, she was supportive. But meanwhile, she said, listen, also practical time for school. Get ready for school. Okay, so at eight years old, you kind of was it like an inner feeling? Like, how did you you know, I this is what I said when I was eight for many years. People didn't understand the answer. So I ended up coming up with a different answer that was more, I guess, socially acceptable. But the truth is the reason why I wanted to be a rabbi and it remains the same. I was ordained in 1985. It remains the same until this very day is that I wanted to be immersed in knowing what rabbis know. I wanted to be immersed in the mystery, um, in the ineffable, in the wondering and the curiosity. I wanted that to be my life, to to contemplate and then to teach what occurred to me. Oh, that's pretty amazing that you kind of knew that at eight years old. And as you continue to grow, that those feelings were still there. And you are you're a phenomenal speaker, a phenomenal teacher, as I said, an unbelievably great author. Um, and yeah, so all good. All right. So so you, grammar school, you just went to grammar school and high school in Washington suburb yeah. and then. Like when you went to pick a college, were you thinking, okay, I've got to pick a, I don't even know, was there like a a pre-rabbinical thing or how did that work? So I said to my rabbi, I want to be a rabbi. Um, Mm -hmm. What, what university, what should I, what should my major be? And my rabbi, Gene Lippman of blessed memory said, look, you'll have rabbinic school is a, is a five-year graduate program. Okay. He'll say, he said, you have five years to really study the rabbinics. Uh, rabbis need to be well-rounded people. Okay. Uh, that is something else. And at the same time, that same year, eight, nine, 10, I was developing my writing career. I suppose I wrote my first poem. I wrote my first story. So I decided wow. to study English literature. Okay. Not at the English education, but English literature. And the study of English literature taught me how to, um, to see the world. Mm-hmm. In, in like, in what, like in what way? Like in what way? You know, and it, and it goes according to my counseling as well. Everything has meaning mm-hmm. Everything has par- to make sense out of paradox, to make to make meaning out of irony, to see the metaphor and the symbolism and everything, mm-hmm. to know that things are deeper than what appears on the surface, mm-hmm. uh, to, to dig and find beauty in the twisting of the words and in the turning of a phrase so that that articulation becomes a spiritual principle that really grounds you in a sense of meaning. You know, you're, you can go to this world and you could say, you know, I'm really spiritual. I know I just feel it. Mm -hmm. And and that's great. That's one level of awareness and awesome for saying that, but what does that mean? And how does that mean? And where do you find that? And how does that unfold in your life? And how does that inform your life? All those articulations help deepen your sense of purpose. I'm with you 100 um, percent. I just think it's so, so amazing that you kind of knew that and that, you know, you started writing it again. I just must just take one step back. I was thinking because your path, I think, for an eight, 10 year old, little unusual. How did that work as far as socially? Like were were there times where kids weren't so nice to you? I mean, like what's how, how did that work and how did you deal with that? 
if that's happened. Well, you're clearly who you are, my dear Janice, for sure. Can't help it. I'm a therapist. I gotta know. I gotta take therapist. I gotta go back to the beginning. What can I say? But go of ahead. All the podcasts and interviews I've been on, no one has ever asked me that question. Um, well, I'll, I'll answer you. If honestly, you feel comfortable, I, I'd, I'd love to hear that. Hundred percent. It's all okay. the telling of the story. Yep. Um, look, I was socially unacceptable. There's no question. I was curious. I was wondering. I was dreamy. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they they called that. Uh, I had learning disabilities that were undiagnosed. Oh wow! I had an imagination. Uh, I didn't like softball. I didn't like baseball. Mm-hmm. I you know I. I liked wandering in the woods and looking at the sky. So yes, for sure. I must've been a different, different kind of child. Yep. I, I was not well-liked, um, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a child, I was bullied a little bit. Um, and I found that um, I found the power of heroic living very, very early. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the thing that ends up defeating a purpose person is not the circumstances of their life, but the day that they wake up in the darkest part of their life mm-hmm. and shake their fist at the heavens and say, eh, you're not going to get me and then decide to become the hero of their life. Mm-hmm. And that that journey towards heroic living mm-hmm. took me way into my I'm going to say even my 40s. Wow. Um, I love that phrase, by the way, heroic living, because it doesn't mean you have to, you know, uh, save everything. It's it's about, no, I'm going to take the risk within myself, I'm guessing, to to just do better and and live my truth. Well, you know, someone once said to me, you know how heroes are made. Heroes aren't made during peacetime. Right. Made during embattlement. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all embattled. We all got our thing. You know, I, I, I'll tell you my thing and you'll tell me your thing. Mm-hmm. And whatever, whatever little ding that we had to our soul back in third grade or whenever it is somebody pushed you down and you realized you weren't 100 percent supported in love. That, yeah. that thing is always your thing. The question always. is always you don't you don't get over it. You don't heal from it. It just doesn't necessarily define you. Or, or if it does define you. It defines you in terms of a, uh, the motivation to towards beauty, towards purpose, towards meaning, towards teaching, love. towards loving, and towards and towards love. So yeah. So it's not like like you said. You could tell me your thing. Believe me, I could tell you my thing. Um, high school wasn't like the best exactly time of my life um, in many ways. In some ways, it was, but whatever. Um, but it's it's more like when I think to myself, you know, well, what made me decide I, I didn't really realize what my purpose was more till I was like later, like 30 ish. But I did have an aha moment after struggle. And so often it's when you're struggling is the opportunity that the door opens if you're willing to walk through, which you have been and I have and continue to walk through. Um, that's when that's when just great things happen. And no one's saying that it's an easy you know, an easy thing, but, um, so yeah. So, so childhood was, and was your little, not miss popular. No. Did you, so did you do a lot of reading? Like, how did you cope with that? When, she, when you said you started the heroic journey, like, was it through reading as in literature? I would say through high school, um, uh-huh. I had many, many inappropriate and bad behaviors. Oh, okay. I remember I'm a kid of the seventies. Right, right, right. So you were early seventies, late sixties. Um, so I graduate high school early. 
because I knew that my environment was supporting me on bad behavior. Mm. And again, I went to this rabbi and said, I, I got to get out of this high school. Um, mm-hmm. What should I do? He said, go to Israel. So I said, fine. So I went to Israel for seven months. I created the gap year. I, oh, okay. I was going to say you were an early gap year. Okay. I, I created the gap year and I did an enormous, I started the depth of my healing in the orange orchards of Israel um, oh. and in the cotton fields. There's mm-hmm. something very redemptive about nature. Yes. I and, love nature. Yep. And physical labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I just immersed myself in that. And that's when my healing years start. I always say that, you know, the first 20 years you, you grow up and the second 20 years you heal from growing up there. Love it. So true. And that yeah. healing could even go on longer, but that's excellently said. Perfect. Right. So I, I started my healing years in those, mm-hmm. those, uh, those fields and in, in the kibbutz. And it sounds like your parents were supportive of that. Yeah. Yeah, my parents were just my parents were extraordinary people. My mother's still alive, but yes, oh wow, extraordinary people. No, that's no, because that's amazing. Because again, just you know, for the list, this way, she's way before her time with all this. Okay, so now you're in Israel. You like it there. You're learning. You're in nature. You're ha- having some epiphanies. It sounds like every now and then, and then you decide to come back to the states to go to college. Correct. I went back. I came back to the States, went to college, studied um, English lit Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then went straight into rabbinic school. Rabbinic school, as I said, is five year graduate program. First year is mandatory in Jerusalem. Oh, really? Back in Israel, in which I met my current, my husband, my only husband. (laughs) Is that current? I thought that. Yeah. And Um, um, married after knowing each other for just a couple of months. um, And. Well, true love is true love. Here you are 50, whatever, 45 years later. Um, so when, while you were in college, did you feel like you were more, um, I don't know, like, like you found some friends and some like-minded souls? Yep. I, uh, you know, I, I, all the bad behaviors felt so high school to me. So by the time I was college, I was over it. And so, I, I mean, I, I know all of my literature majors, we, you know, we, we quoted Shakespeare and Marlowe and we were, we were reading an enormous amount again with a learning disability. I was reading 500 wow. pages a week, typing on old typewriters, which I couldn't type because I had a, a type of dyslexia and wasn't really ever diagnosed until my third degree. Really? Learned compensations, but the compensation, you know, when you can't read correctly, or like everybody else reads, then um, then you learn to see things differently. Mm-hmm. That's what we call creativity. Right. A person sees things differently mm-hmm. than the creative spirit um, takes over, which I guess I always had. Anyway. Right. So so you stop doing the bad behaviors, which, of course, curious minds want to know. Do you care to share any of those bad behaviors just to see how you've grown and or not really? No, I think I think uh, the imagination can Uh, fill in the blanks. Okay, I just always feel whatever I'm thinking about asking, they're probably wanting to know, too. But I totally respect that. Um, All right. So you finished college. You found other people that, you know, were going to read Shakespeare. And I would say other people to your um, that might match your intellectual um, ability and your curiosity. So that was good. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you went to Jerusalem for the first year. So just back up, though. At that point, then obviously they were accepting women. I mean, like how? Had, oh, they still weren't accepting women. No, in the you know, as a matter of fact, that's when I really learned the the, the 
that people could say no to you. Um, the, the first woman had not been ordained yet. And uh, people were saying things really? to me like, you, you can't do this. You're too pretty. You can't do this. Mm-hmm. You're too sexy. You can't do this. You're a woman. You can't do. And I, there was like a lot of no's. But, you know, when you grow up with yes, by the time you're 19, it's mm-hmm. too late. I, I, I lived in a world of yes. You can't mm-hmm. really know anymore. And everybody knows. Just don't ever say no to me. You can say, well, I don't know. Did you look at it this way? Or maybe we should do it that way. And we mm-hmm. can think of alternatives for something, but never, ever, ever say no. Mm-hmm. Because the world is filled with possibility and it's just a question of figuring it out and moving forward and taking a left and taking a right and being agile and moving and moving. I, I'm with you, but I love, you know, because as successful as you've been, that it wasn't exactly smooth sailing and that that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually an opportunity for what you're saying to grow and, and even do better or more. Actually, Janice, you know, I just need to tell you and, and the people who may be listening to us, um, after being ordained in 1985, um, well, someday I might write the book of all the all the places I've been run out of, you know, that the career yeah. was not an easy path. Well, I, was, I and you know that I was sort of in that first 100%. career. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I was. I am entrepreneurial and creative. I have ideas. I believe in big ideas. I, I believe in, and it didn't, it doesn't necessarily fit into a mold. It doesn't at all fit into a Not mold. Not at all. And so if you're in somebody else's framework and structure, it yep. looks um, threatening or it looks subversive. And it is threatening and subversive. Big ideas are threatening and subversive. So I was kicked out of a lot of places. It wasn't until recently in the last 19 years that I found a fertile ground in which people would live the yes with me. Exactly. So I'm just going to share a little because I I was so back. I don't know if that was your first. No. No. Okay. First time I was kicked out of a place, but you witnessed one of them. I did. (laughs) I did. So I happen to be a member. So this goes back. I don't know. Thirty five. My kids were bar mitzvah there and they're 47. and. 43 now. So whatever, 35 years ago. Um, and I was just, that's why I feel like, and, and Rabbi Kadar knows this, a special connection to her. Cause I feel like I've known her, even though I'm not super active in the synagogue, I feel like I've known her for over 35 years, but that particular, um, congregation was, there was a lot of, um, tumult and a lot of things that just were not, not just, because of her, just because in general of that particular leadership. And I got to witness, unfortunately, third hand, because when Rabbi Kadar came, we all loved her. We thought like, wow, she's young. She's energetic. She's got really some great new ideas. And if you're not particularly, um, I don't know how to say this in a nice way, observant, like, you know, uh, to, to be, to go to a service and feel like, oh, someone's actually touching me. It's not just about the prayers. Like, what this rabbi has to say is more meaningful than just quoting something from the Bible or the Torah. And that's what you are so fantastic at. I mean, I love, love, love. Again, I'm not a big, uh, I don't go to synagogue a lot, but when I do go, 
I've always looked forward very, very much because when Rabbi Kadar does a talk, she doesn't even have a notebook in front of her. It's all in her head. She just takes that microphone and then talks for 20, 25 minutes and says something unbelievably remarkable, touching, spiritual. That is not just about, yes, it has a religious, there's always a, you always tie it into whatever the service is, but it's humanity. And so I can appreciate how that must have been hard for someone who had a big ego in in other environments or many environments. So, um, and then you came to this synagogue, this congregation, and you've done an unbelievably remarkable job getting it going. And um, it was an older congregation that moved to a different suburb, but you took it from one place to a whole nother place. That's just been amazing to to watch. You know, thank you, Janice. I think I'd like to just make one small correction in the way you tell that story. OK, not, go ahead. I think years ago I might have used the word ego, but OK. Your path unfolds by the places you're allowed to go and the places that you're denied. Okay. And the all the all the times that I was denied a path forward, I was just asked to take a left turn. Okay. And the path, I love it. And the path kept unfolding. So, you know, as the years go on, when you're mm-hmm. when you're trying to ground yourself in a sense of meaning and purpose, less judgment and more curiosity. Mm-hmm helps you frame the story again in terms of heroic living rather than victimization. So, Love it. So is Love there it. out there? Absolutely. Um, but, but that's, that's not how I choose to tell the story. I, well, I appreciate that. First of all, I like your way better. And so it's fabulous. All right. So just going back though. So you uh, I just want to go back to um, in, in rabbinical school, you were the only woman or were there, and was there any other women? No, by the time I got to school, there were about a third women in the class. I think we had about um, 30, 35 people okay. in the class. Um, and we were about a third women. I had never seen a woman rabbi before. So it was that first time in Jerusalem that I looked at my classmate and we kind of looked at each other in the mirror and, at, at, and ourselves and said, well, is this is this what we're supposed to look like? <laughs> Are we supposed to have long hair? Are we supposed to have dangling earrings? Do we need to wear suits? Can we wear sweaters? It right. was, it was. Um, well, you were in new territory. Yeah. We in, what is the keep of, we were in brand new territory. Mm-hmm. So, and then you, so you did the first year in Jerusalem and then you came back here. Four years um, in Cincinnati. So you were in Cincinnati. Oh, okay. That's where, okay. So you, because you had, is that where the school was or? The school has three stateside campuses, L.A., Cincinnati and New York. Okay. Cincinnati. Okay. And then so did you stay in Cincinnati? Like because I know you have three children and did you have your kids there or? Talia was born. Our first was born in Cincinnati and I made Aliyah move to Israel two weeks after ordination. Oh, wow. In my career in Israel. Mm. Um, became the second woman rabbi in all of Israel's history. Wow. First woman rabbi in Jerusalem's history to work in Jerusalem. Wow. Um, And was met with lots of, I mean, I was young. I didn't really know anything, but, but I was, I kind of said, you know, growing up in Washington in the era that I did, I remember when China um, gave the national zoo, the panda bears. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And we all stood online to go see the panda bears. And mm. we looked at them. We said, oh, my God, look, it's moving. 
<laughs> God, it's eating. And that's kind of how it was as a woman rabbi in Jerusalem. She, they were like, oh my God, she talks, she moves. And so I was um, in a lot of newspaper and television, and but I also got death threats. Did um, you really? Wow. Um, it was quite a, it was quite a path. It was about all in all 10 years in Israel. Oh, I didn't realize that. So you lived in, oh, and, and, and again, here, another, were you, were you actually, I'm saying that you weren't exactly like embraced by everyone. If you're getting death threats, oh my God, were you, were you actually a rabbi in a congregation or what was really? I did a lot of those things. I met with a lot of discrimination, um, because of my gender and also because of my, well, who knows why people yeah. are women against you. I mean, that's, that's not mine to tell, but, um, but yeah, then we, we left to go to where you met me. We came here for a job. Wow. I go, um, went back to Israel for a brief time and then um, came. So to your me. other two, your other two kids were born in Israel. Yeah. Okay. So then, so by the, when they came back here, so they were like in grade school. So Talia was in seventh grade when we moved here and uh, Shiri and Elon were, Elon was in kindergarten. Yeah. Was in how grade. was, how was like, that must've been also another adjustment because where Karen, where Rebecca Dyer was, the congregation is in a kind of affluent suburb of Chicago. So it's a, it's a tough crowd. Let me just say that can be, can be. I mean, I, I lived there too. That's why I was a member of that congregation. Um, but yeah, that's, I would think that'd be quite a culture shock from Jerusalem to Highland Park, Illinois. Yes. It was, um, I stayed there a couple of years then mm-hmm. took another job, uh, which was the regional rabbi for the organization of the reform movement. So I oversaw oh. Oh, about 48 congregations in um, seven states. Wow. So that was a great, great job, a very fascinating, interesting job. And that's how I developed my, my philosophy and theory of leadership and what synagogue of the 21st century could possibly be by seeing other examples at work and other examples that were having trouble. And right. So, so, um, doing during that time during that job you felt again more of a sense like people were respecting you and more of a belonging yeah that was a wonderful wonderful period right and during all this you're still feeling you're on your path of purpose like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing so you love that job and then how did you end up in your current uh position so as i think i said earlier i'm a serial entrepreneur So when I learn a job, I, I then want to do the next thing. Okay. So this congregation was actually falling apart. Right. And I found that to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Of, of and, course you did. Yes. Uh, Most people was, might want to run away, but not, not you. It was against the, the rules of the national movement for me to apply the, to the job, but I kind of. Why, um, why was it against why, the rules? Yeah. Well, because I was the one that was supposed to be be helping the congregation. Mm. So if, you know, any rabbi would think that I was going in to look for their job, but this congregation was falling apart. Um, it was a wonderful congregation with beautiful people and yep. a great history. Um, my, I'm was, just, just on a personal note, my, my brother and sister-in-law belong there. My parents belong there. We ultimately joined there. So yeah. Magnificent. And it was really important that they had a memory of being great. Uh-huh. And uh, I pitched the board saying, look, if you're courageous, 
and you don't say no, I can help within five years. And if I don't, if we don't manage this in five years, then I'll move on. Mm-hmm. So we did rapid change that first year. So they, they hired you? They hired me. Okay. So again, the congregation, the, the lead rabbi who was very, or head rabbi, whatever he's called, was very beloved, but he was getting ready to retire or maybe was retired. I don't know. Uh, yeah, he retired. And so Rabbi Kadar comes in and says, we're going to change this because, you know, the congregation was falling apart. How are you going to get new members? So share a little bit about what your vision was. If you, if you remember. Oh, I remember because we're living the vision. Because she, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I know whatever, if that was the vision 19 years ago, check success beyond words, but share what it was. If you can, you know, I, I think it really boils down to perhaps the ultimate mission of any purposeful life. Okay. Uh, and not only the institution, I just was able to make an institution dedicated to that purpose and mm-hmm. that to find the platforms in which one can discover the meaning and purpose of their life. Mm-hmm. So meaning is that in, internal dialogue you have with yourself. You're yes. lying in bed late at night and you say, oh, my God, what's it all for? Why am I alive? Mm-hmm. What, what is giving my life meaning? Mm-hmm. That's the internal dialogue you have. Yep. Purpose is the external dialogue you have with the world. Um, How can I make it better? What can I do to help? Uh, How can I find my way in the society of humans? Mm -hmm. When you combine the internal sense of meaning, I'm alive for a reason because I have my unique ability, my Mm -hmm. sparkle. Yes. Given to me from birth. And my purpose is, and then I come down out of the out of, out of the inner life and I say to you, hey, how can I help? Mm-hmm. When those two things walk hand in hand, then life is really good. I, I have such goosebumps. I totally, totally agree because I have experienced that myself and still experiencing it. So, um, so that was kind of your vision. You wanted to create a platform where people could think about the meaning of life, their life in particular, and then think about how they might find purpose in their life. Because again, if you help one person, you've already helped the country, your community, your your family, the community, the country, your world. So that was kind of your, it sounds like your big image of what you'd want for your congregants. Right. And how did you go about doing that? Again, keep in mind, you know, the congregation's falling apart. What was like when you thought, okay, in five years, I've got to I've got five years here that I want to show that I can make it. I can make a difference. I can make a change. Well, the first year was a complete staff turnover. Uh-huh. Um, changed the manner of worship. Um, got the congregation to embark on a major capital campaign and move twenty-five miles north. That was all year one. Yep, um, they're very near my house now, so it's very convenient. <laughs> by year year. Four or five is when the world economy crashed. Ah. So it took us six years rather than five years. Um, But basically, we just knew that we needed to change the location. And not only the location, but I started to learn that architecture, the the structure in which you live, Uh informs the inner spirit. Yep. Okay. 
even your home. I agree. It's a reflection of how, who you are. It's a reflection of who you are, the beauty that you put, the, the, the craziness. Exactly. The order, the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. The knickknacks. Yep. Knickknacks. And so we created a place where I where what I call pockets of holiness, where there, there were pockets of holiness that spoke the language a value-based living and a mission purpose-driven life. Yep. So, so now, now you're the head rabbi and in general, how do you feel you were received? I mean, you know, you, you're an innovative creator kind of a gal um, and a woman. So even though it's, it's, you know, we'd like to think we're, I, I can't even believe that it, I, I'm saying that we're now giving women's more rights, but of course there's a whole nother thing going on, but this isn't a political co- uh, podcast, but I want to scream, but I'm going to try not to. Um, so how were you greeted? Do you feel as a, as a woman rabbi? There were about 10 to 12 people who were in it with me. Right. Um, uh, congregants. Uh-huh. There were people who thought I was destroying their congregation and Mm -hmm. protested um, against me. But, you know, there was a rabbi a long time ago who said something very wise, and I really live by this. And that is, you're never as good as they say you are, and you're never as bad as they say you are. Wise words. Yep. I I try (laughs) try to kind of live there. Uh, We did something magnificent. I'm not going to say we didn't. It's a beautiful congregation. Beyond beautiful and 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 a busy one in, in terms of activities and um, members. My son now joined, you know, for his family. So my little I'm sad that, you're, you know, my grand we just got her about mitzvah date, which is in three years. And I went, oh, but Karen won't be there to do it. But uh, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's, it's a really phenomenal you know, as someone who's a member, you did an unbelievable thing from what was because I was a part of that congregation as well um, to what is not, not that that wasn't wonderful. It was. But this is to me like a whole nother level of different. It's it's um, current. I, I think you're very aware of the um, what you want. I don't know if this is what you wanted, but this is what's happened. You There's a lot of young families and the other congregation, those families were getting older. So in order to have a congregation, you know, thrive, you have to have new members. And so what are you going to do to get these 40 year olds, you know, with their new kids to come and join? And you have done that beautifully and magnificently. And it's a, need to yeah. have a multi-generational community. All communities should live in the generations of the old and the young. Yes. Yes. If it's just about the young people. Then we're all stupid together. Well, that's it's true. Just about the old people. Then we're all old together. Exactly. And we kind of all need each other to sort of the youthful exuberance and hope and, and, um, and the ability to take risk along with the wisdom of the elders, you know, uh, well, well said. Well said. Yes, I, I certainly agree with that because I'm an elder now. So I want people to be aware of my wisdom if they'll listen. Um, OK, so, you know, you're about to retire from this congregation. Um, do you have thoughts on, you know, as you're living your purpose, continue to live your purpose? Anything that you'd like to share of what you're kind of thinking of? Well, you know, you take you with you. Yes. Wherever you go, there you are. Yep. Wherever you go, there you are, as the saying goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know I will be writing. Mm-hmm. I hope I will be teaching. I'm just, I'm calling this retirement period shifting. Mm-hmm. Oh, retirement. I'm, you know, retirement for those of your listeners who are in this age group. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Retirement is one of those life altering moments like marriage or the Mm -hmm. child or for me, ordination where life is never, or maybe a divorce, life is never, ever the same again afterwards. Yep. And it's different than have going for another job. It is mm-hmm. a, a shift of the way you walk through this world. Mm-hmm. And so without a whole lot of anticipation for the future, I'm just living in the shifting. Okay. I would, first of all, how very psychologically healthy of you, um, because yeah. that's, no, that's, no. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Cause that is the truth. And, you know, I mean, to me, People are always asking me, are you ever going to retire or whatever? And I, at the moment, the answer is, I don't even know what that means, because I'm, I also feel a very strong sense of purpose and, and that I have, a, I have something to still offer and help. Hence why I started this podcast has been going on for over a year, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't mean. Right. Sometimes people, you know, with retirement, like it's a big ending. So I love that you're using the word shifting because that's what it is. It's just a, di- a different part of your life is now going to unfold. Well, your story is unbelievably interesting. And it sounds like you, what I love is, you know, I, I, well, of course, almost everyone I've interviewed to me, if someone says, oh yeah, I found my purpose and it was easy peasy. I think, well, that's not really very interesting story, nor do I think it's very authentic. So it's really important to me that whoever I talk to that they say, yeah, sometimes it's, it sucked. It was really, really hard. I struggled. So I was just asking Rabbi Kadar any final words for people who are trying to figure out what their purpose is, like any just closing advice for them. I can tell you that I personally believe that we are all born with some beautiful, magnificent, holy spark, and that it's our life's mission to uncover that spark, to believe in it, to live with it, to throw it back out in the universe so that the world can see your brightness and your beauty. And when you can't hold that for yourself, then to find somebody else that can hold it for you, to to surround yourself by a person, people, that see the beauty of who you are and support that beauty when you're having the most difficult time so that when you're feeling stronger and more hopeful and more courageous, then you can take back that light and that hope and, and live it, live that truth inside. I love it. I, beautiful. Love it. Well, I cannot thank you enough. This was so meaningful and spiritual and purposeful. Um, I always end every podcast with a quote, and this one is actually from you, from something that you wrote last week. So let me just share it. This is from Rabbi Karen Kadar. Um, We are called to dwell in wonder. How would it be if you allowed yourself to hear the call and you answered the call to live a life, live a sacred life of meaning and purpose? Out of the confusion, there would be clarity. Out of the days, there may be wonder. Out of the mundane, you would find purpose. Out of the darkness, may there be light. This has been our most singular mission, meaning and purpose. On that note, hopefully everyone enjoyed this. I love talking to you. It was great. Until next time, this is Janice Alpert, hoping that you're living your life with purpose and on purpose. So till next time, bye-bye.